Jeez, Dad, not the car again. Oh, happens all the time with old Betsy. Have you checked out Carvana yet? They have thousands of cars for under $20,000. But do those thousands of cars have personality like old Betsy? Betsy's held together by tape. And there are raccoons living in the engine. It's a family car. Uh, there are flames on the hood? Ah, custom paint job. No, Dad, the car's on fire. How many cars did you say Carvana had? Visit Carvana.com to shop thousands of cars for under $20,000. We'll drive you happy at Carvana. When Arsenal knocks on the door of players, it's a different knock than other clubs. Clubs, clubs, clubs. The Different Knock, an Arsenal podcast. But what made you so sure that this was the best place and this was the right decision for you? It's Arsenal, you know. Come on, it's Arsenal. Welcome back to One Regular Day of Barclays, an Arsenal podcast with Brendan Todgers and my very good friends. I think of Harry Potter. Oh, wait, no. George V. (laughs) Brendan Todgers. Surely like Graham. Uh, Graham, I don't know. Graham, we've got, no, we've got, we can't. Graham Clopper. Graham, 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 Graham Trotter. Trotter, no. This is this, this is, is poor. peak content, lads. This is exactly what this, this is. Peak is. content. Welcome back to the different Arsenal podcast. <laughs> what a weekend! What a weekend in the Barclays Premier League. What a weekend um, of the fucking Barclays boys. Brendan Rodgers gone. Paratici suspended. Uh, Levy maybe going. City smash pool. Potter sacked. Um, and we will get to that all in news and views. So if you want to hear about our thoughts and all that, you can skip to, uh, after the break. But uh, in amongst all that, we played a game of football and we beat Leeds 4-1 at the Emirates. Um, George, I'll start with you, please. What is your word of the game um, and uh, and your overall thoughts on the game? Because um, as we were talking about in the instant reaction, it felt like it could have been a bit of a trap game in, in some senses. It felt like it could have been a kind of, you know, we're heading into a really... Um, you know, every period's a pivotal period, but it feels like a particularly pivotal period with the games that are coming up and and the places we need to go to, Anfield, St James's Park, all that sort of stuff. Um, it felt like it could have been a game where we tripped up, but we got the job done. So yeah, word of the game and uh, and your thoughts overall, please, sir. Absolutely, I think uh, my word of the game is calculated, and I and I feel uh, it, it was a time when the team chose to employ certain principles. When I had a look at the kind of rewatch when you look at the first half, I felt as though um, the intensity was calculated. I don't think that we engaged in the press fully for 90 minutes. I think that we were very particular about when and where we chose to attack leads. And I think that similarly, there was a bit of a chess match going. When you talk about the trap game potential of this, um, it was huge. Uh, you know, Man City going on for a very comprehensive win on something that everybody was hoping that they would drop points on coming back from the international break. Um, and of course, trying a formation where we had to kind of bow out Bukayo Saka, who has been an ever-present person in the side. And I think no matter how good we are, we seem to forget how important Bukayo has been, um, you know, to our team. And there was a time when not just Bukayo, but anybody in the spine that was missing met total collapse for Arsenal's performance on the whole. And we've just become accustomed to it because we've been so good this season. But I think it is phenomenal in the way that we were calculated in our approach. Uh, Trossard filling in an unfamiliar role, something that I don't think suited him, but he still thrived. And it shows the power of the squad to be able to be flexible um, to losing basically one of your best build-up progressors in William Saliba and then one of your best attacking final third facilitators in Bukayo Saka and still romping out a big 4-1 win 
in what was arguably one of the more convincing performances of the season in terms of some of the attacking play that we found, a lot of system goals. But again, I, I felt it was very purposeful. There was a lot of um, intent behind our actions. And Chavi uh, Garcia, I think, set up leads perfectly and did um, a very good job, um, slightly different to what other teams had done in terms of how they blocked the middle. Um, but nonetheless, very effective. And I, and I think Arsenal were just very patient and I keep going back to that word calculated because when you have a look at some of the goals, we saw a lot of things that we haven't done that I think we need to do. The half space cross goal, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but there were some things that we showed that I would like to see more of. And, and, and we did it in this game, giving people time to rest. And um, I think it's just a perfect game from an Arsenal perspective when you're looking at the overall impact on the title running. Yeah. Yeah, my word of the game is moment, momentum. Um because I felt like once we once we got going, we we looked as good as we've been this season. And uh, as as you say, Leeds did something slightly differently, which I think took us a little bit by surprise, maybe uh, in terms of how they uh, how they blocked the middle. And we'll come to that in the tactical stuff uh, side of things in a second. But Brad, we are in the middle of an absolutely incredible run for Arsenal, um, and we kind of know this. But to kind of put that in perspective, we've just got the stats here. We are, where are we? I think this is the, yeah, the sixth, is this? The sixth best points total after 29 games, after Liverpool 19-20, City 17-18, Chelsea in 04-05 and 05-06, and then us in the midsball season on 72 points. Every single one of those uh, teams finished first. We are in an incredible, incredible position, and it just feels like this momentum of this team is not stopping. I know there's always the concerns. You go into every single game, you think, oh, is this the game? Is this the game? But ultimately, the, the, the principles of play, as I always say, and the reason I am convinced that we're going to win, win the league this season, the principles of play are always there and they can't go away. It doesn't matter what, and this is why it's sustainable and repeatable. They can't go away. You could you can lose a Harry Kane and and, and he can't get you the the goal and 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 you start slipping down the down the table. But we're not built on individuals. We're built on a team. We're built on principles of play, and we're built on an unbelievable setup by by the coach. What's your word of the game? And yeah, I mean, we were started discussing off air, weren't we? This is it. It can't be overstated how incredible this run is. Yeah, this is and how incredibly mental. we're doing. Like it's it's mental. Like uh, I was torn between two words. Um, the first one's history because like this is history. This is the sixth best points total in in Premier League history after this amount of games. That's mental. Um, and my other one was was worry uh, because I think as Arsenal fans and thinking more broadly rather than in relation to the actual game, we're so used to worrying about when. That moment's going to come. We're going to get bitten in the asses. You know, our star players out. We're going to fall apart. Or, you know, we've had six wins. Here comes the classic loss to a relegation side. Uh, and I think we forget we're not we're not the same team anymore. And we're not the same culture anymore. And we're not the same squad. And we're not the same entity. Uh, and I think that's really important. We were chatting off air briefly about, and I mentioned about, the way that I like to view the transition that Arsenal has gone through is a bit different in that we were very, very bad not that long ago. Like very, very bad not that long ago. And now we are very, very good. And I think that not enough time has passed for that worry to naturally dissipate in fans. 
and you see it in you know people tw- uh, people were talking about Chelsea this season as Arsenal last season Arsenal last season were pretty good across the whole with a centre forward too busy eating Dunkin Donuts and no squad depth um, <laughs> and you know you have to now go back 18 months 20 months nearly two years to, to when we were really in our, our really really dark dark phases and you you look at what we've gone through and I think it's time for all of us as fans to understand that we are not the same anymore and there is no need to have the same worries. Blips will happen, moments will happen, but we now have the quality and depth, which was a big thing that we spoke about on, on the podcast before last, about how we can repeat this next season, being able to bring Trossard in, to bring Jesus in, all of these quality, quality players, uh, you know, Trossard has more assists than some Premier League teams this season. Like, he's ridiculous. Like, he's unbelievable. And I just, I, I, I can't give enough flowers and praise and just absolute wondrous, rapturous, superlative-filled adulation <laughs> to this, to yep. this... To, to every to everything to do with this and I think it's yeah. you know we, me, we I said this, uh, we had a conversation about like how to appreciate this and to, that we really need to take stock of this like this is history in the making and we are here to witness it and not only is it history in the making but it comes after we were really really shit only two years ago when has a club gone from being like the doldrums of the depths of hell to this level of quality in that space of time and maintained it, I cannot think of a single, single other iteration of this. It's unbelievable. Yeah. George, I don't want to shut you out of this. And and I think it's, yeah, as I say, it bears repeating that if you look at those teams, those five teams ahead of Arsenal in terms of points after 29 games, one is our Invincibles team, our best ever team. We were one point behind them. There's two that are Mourinho, early Mourinho, and you know, to, to quote that meme, he was special. And then it's peak Centurions Man City and that Liverpool team in, in the COVID years, which just had that incredible, incredible run where they look like they they do it unbeaten it as well. None of the Sir Alex Ferguson teams, no other Arsenal team are close. Um that Chelsea team in 1617, Conte are equal with us. Ferguson's final season is close, but you know, we are in as Brad puts it, we are making history. History is happening in front of our eyes. And to do it with such a young team as well, it's it's just extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. And there's almost no way we will be able to fully understand the context of this. In fact, you literally can't understand the context of this until we look back on it and, and, and what we've achieved and what this team, possibly more excitingly, um, as always in football, is what it could go on to achieve. You know, if Arsenal finish the season as title winners... If, you, if I'm looking at the teams that are around us and in t- looking at the t- in terms of, um, you know, achievements in this league, I hope that it goes down in the same breath. Not necessarily. It's it's not a Leicester. It's, you know, that isn't, it's not that achievement. It's, it wasn't 5,000 to one. It's not that. It's, it won't be the Centurions unless we get 100 points. But will this Arsenal team have to go down? Which we can't mathematically. Yeah, well, will, will this Arsenal team have to go down as one of those teams that gets talked about in years to come. And I I feel like it will have to that first, that season where Arsenal took the leap under Mikel Arteta um, with a young team 
where Bukayo Saka, hopefully the you know the darling of English football to, for for years to come, became the superstar that he is. It feels like we'll have to ha- will we have to have a name, <laughs> you know, like the, the or have a uh, a phrase that that goes with it in the same way that you have the Centurions, the Invincibles, the the five thousand to one. You know, what will that be un- under Arteta? I don't know. Um, but look, it's it's insane. Well, I mean, we, we, I, I, sorry to jump in before George, but we would be the youngest team on average to win it. I'm pretty sure. That I was just going to say that I I think you have we are known to be uh, you know. Uh, some young guns, but maybe the young turrets or something, because it, it's beyond normal what this team has been doing, and it is. You never won nothing with Gudge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do. You do. I love um, Irish the, people. Uh, look, I, I think the superlatives on the team, in, in terms of how to talk about it, is good. Is going to be probably bigger when you look at the context of our era um, and, and how this is probably starting our era. Like, I don't think people even realize that some of the big superstars on our team that we talk about, Bukayo Saka, prime example. Um, guys, he hasn't even filled out his superstar potential yet. Like this is the infancy of his own story. Like, and and when you look through the entirety of the team, William Saliba, this is his first year with us. When you look at Gabriel Magles, like this is probably the first season that we've noticed this level of consistency from him. Um, if you really want to go through the team, there's so many examples. Gabriel Martinelli, another one. He's had moments, but this is his first big season that he's produced in probably over 15, 20 games across the length of a season. Again, not a a fault of his own, but again, there are so many infant storylines here. And chief among them, by the way, Mikel Arteta. Like when you look at youngest coaches in the world, he is among that. And so when when you have a look at what we're doing, the way we're doing it, the consistency that we're doing, I I think absolutely it will be talked about. not now, by the way, but in years to come. And the reason I don't say now is because the media and general public have been so vociferous in their denouncing of Arsenal, but mainly Mikel Arteta and his eligibility, calling him a cone man, that they cannot give the praise, uh, given the absolute uh, horrific narrative that they've tried to spread for the last 18 months. I think that simply is what it is. They can't really cut off their nose to spite their face in that sense, because what this team is doing from the numbers it is not a Leicester. I really push back on that. I hate that even narrative. And I know none of the boys here on the pod are even unanimous in, <laughs> in accepting that. But I, I think people doing that are doing it because they went so hard on the team and Arteta as a whole, I feel. And that's blocking their ability to praise what's being done because what's being done is special. Um, and it is incredible, guys. I mean, how many players do we have that are on over 10 uh, Premier League goals? In the league again, spreading the goals in a youthful team—that's not something that's done typically in title races. We don't have a 30-goal season striker. The team is the 30-goal season striker. When you look at it, you know, in terms of how many U23 center backs are in the league producing this consistency. I mean, William Saliba and Gabriel, who just turned 24, maybe is out of that now. But again, they are an outlier, and we've talked about this outlier effect for so long. Uh, I think that the praise will be done in the future, though, and not quite now. Um, and only because of the past critiques of this team and not because of what, they, they, what they've done, because what they've done is incredible. George, I can't believe it. You've got something wrong. Gabriel Magalhaes is 25. Oh, is he 25? Oh, God. Unbelievable. Ridiculous. Probably the first... Is that the first thing you got wrong in the podcast, maybe? Pro- <laughs> Let's celebrate that it. That is one of many. <laughs> maybe. I, can, I can probably assure it. <laughs> That's a moment. That is That's a, a huge moment. moment. Um, 
George, sticking with you and Big Mickey back. Tets, by the way, would be the youngest manager to ever win the league as well. Youngest Same. team to ever win it, youngest manager to ever win it. Call us the Undertaker, be baby, because we, we, we've risen. <laughs> the Undertakers, that's what we called. <laughs> Not as catchy as the Invincibles. Uh, won't sell as many DVDs. Since Man City, uh, that, that game away, uh, sorry, at home against Man City, we've gone on to beat Villa, we beat Leicester, we beat Everton, we beat Bournemouth, we beat Fulham. Obviously, we went out of the Europa League, which has kind of taken the shine of it slightly, but we beat Palace and Leeds. And, and sticking with you, George, you know, coming into this game, this was another one of the kind of winnables, another kind of, uh, you know, this run that we've been having a look at. And as we talked about before on the on on the, on the the podcast, obviously you want to look at it game at a time. You want to focus on what's going on. But I'm sure coaches do look at things in pods and, and, in, and in groups and go, look, we've got, okay, three games this week. Let Here's how we're going to manage that with these players. Then we've got a bit of a break and we can reset and stuff. And, and, and I, I imagine that's how, I imagine these seven games have been, uh, a little bit of a of a pod, um, so it's it's great to come through that. But looking more specifically at Leeds, I thought Leeds did pretty well. Um, they didn't play a kind of four five one as uh, some teams have done in, in, and and tried to to block us that way. They played a very narrow three with Sinistera and uh, Somerville, and it was working for a little while. I. Always felt though, and I'd be interested in, in your opinion uh, from a sort of tactical perspective, how we broke through them. I always felt that that was going to, it wasn't going to sustain. Because for me, what they were asking Somerville and Sinistera to do was get out wide and remain narrow. So when, when the ball circulated out to Ben White, Sinistera, or I can't remember who's which is which side, I think Somerville's on the left. Somerville would come out to Ben White and, and try and block his path and then White would be forced back in and vice versa on the left-hand side with uh, Gabriel Zinchenko, etc., etc. But I think when you're asking someone to do that job, which is a lot of running, at some point there is going to be a breakdown in communication or there's going to be a breakdown just in you know the intensity of that. Um, and that's when I felt we got a breakthrough because I actually thought in the first sort of half an hour um, when the commentators on the stream that I was watching were trying their very hardest to make this a contest and very hardest to make this a narrative of, you know, all leads are, leads are coming after Arsenal or whatever. Um but, you know, after that half an hour, I felt that was the big switch when they just stopped, uh, that intensity just slightly dropped. We managed to get our rotations going. We managed to create a bit more broken play because otherwise they were just going to be sat in that six at the back and just basically waiting for us to try and break them down. Created a, a moment, a bit of chaos, Jesus. We break through and then and then we're away and we get the momentum, which is why it's my word of the game. But tactically, how did you see this one playing out? And uh, yeah, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I thought that um, your highlight of the wingers was very important because I feel as though that in and out of possession, they had opposing uh, jobs to do. Um, so kind of in possession, they were asked to kind of stretch the pitch. And then out of possession, they were asked to be a little bit narrow. And I thought that that kind of made uh, less strain on kind of the defenders. And what we ended up doing um, in the second half with our press was exploiting that three at the back a lot more. But it allowed them to keep in a block when they were able to kind of keep uh, their team nice and narrow. And, and instead of packing the middle, per se, they were blocking the entry pass from our defense. And a lot of that, for me as a coach, is probably looking at Rob Holding and the impact of that having onto your buildup. I think a lot of reason why teams haven't done this is because it demands basically your wingers to really stay inside but be a diligent in terms of blocking that between-the-line entry pass into the middle third. And the reason it doesn't work as much is potentially because, you know, William Saliba... Um, has a lot more to offer in that role. 
Um, and I think the idea was to kind of step up into Rob's inability to progress and kind of almost let him have the ball, but then block off our other progressors in Zinchenko and otherwise so that we couldn't get out in Partey as well. And I, I think that was the goal. I don't think it happened well for them because I think that, you know, both teams had a little bit of a chess match at the beginning, but it was more so Arsenal's inability to get out on the right-hand side of our pitch um, than kind of Leeds' pressure stopping us, per se. I think the both were kind of counteracting forces in that first half. Um, but then in the end, uh, our ability to switch quickly is what uh, caught out Leeds' back line. So, you know, Somerville... Um, was having a great game individually. I thought he was phenomenal, probably Leeds' is the best player. Um, but essentially, we, we kind of had space between their um, their pseudo wing back and their third center back. And that and that's something that we exploited kind of on multiple goals. And what happened was we were just kind of drawing people in and looking for a quick switch, whether that was a cross uh, back post or whether that was a half space cross even to Grant Chaka. But we were looking to draw uh, players in before quick switches out to the opposite flank. Um, and we do this a lot. But especially when you have a 3-4-3 that's quite narrow, um, if you can do that, you take out more players because you leave um, their outlets um, kind of 1v1 as opposed to uh, 2v1. And, and that really is the biggest change in, in the middle of the park. But um, I, I thought their wingers, they grew tired, but I mean, they were always asking a lot of their wingers to make up for that role because instead of adding one person in the middle, they kind of added one in defense, which... Um, has its benefits, but also does a lot of running for the team. Something I noticed as well, and I'd be interested in your perspective from a, uh, as a coach sticking with you, George, is I felt as though at the beginning of the season, we were, again, it's difficult to say exactly this, but in, gen in general, uh, in possession, we were in a 2-3 with Zinchenko and White slightly tucking in uh, inside. We've moved more to a 3-2 with Zinchenko as the kind of quasi-double pivot. I suppose you could say that with White more as the third centre-back. Again, it's not it's not simple as this, obviously, but it's more like that. But I felt like yes, uh, yesterday we actually returned more to that 2-3. From a coach's perspective, what is the difference, would you think, between a 3-2 and a 2-3? Like, why is it more options ahead of the ball for someone like Rob Holding? That's the only thing I can think of. But um, but yeah, go on. What, why do you think we've seen that? It's exactly that. It's it's in your first phase, and it's not so much in terms of when you're sustaining pressure. It's more to get out, and and that's also more of a response in terms of if you're going to have three narrow wingers inside, what you're looking for is you're removing one player from midfield out, and so the response would mean a return to the two three because then you can add a player in the midfield for receiving purposes, and so. Um, Prior, people weren't doing that. They were doubling up on our wingers, but you know we kind of left somebody in the middle of the park open, which meant that we needed an extra body in the in in deep buildup, kind of along with Aaron Ramsdale, to kind of help us create angles to move people because they were doubling up on our wide option to get out. That's not the case when you have kind of two narrow wingers that are inside, and you know what what you do need then is not so much somebody deep to draw them in, but you need somebody extra in the middle third to offer a solution because they don't have that extra body um, in the middle third. That That's the biggest difference when you go look at a 4-5-1 versus kind of maybe a 3-4-3 three, three in, in tradition. And kind of that's the effect of having a 3-2 or a 2-3 buildup in terms of sacrificing. Do you need somebody to offer up angles deeper in the pitch or do you need somebody to offer you more angles kind of in the middle third? Because typically what people have done is mark, man mark Thomas Partey and then recognize, oh shoot, Zinchenko being free is kind of their main progressor and he's equally as good. So we need to make sure we've got bodies on both of those players. And as a result, you drop somebody 
into the back three, like a Ben White, who is effectively um, kind of a pseudo midfielder in the way that he approaches a lot of his stuff. And so that, that basically forces you to put a man to him. And, and that is kind of the tactical demand um, with that. But without um, kind of that extra body in midfield, um, I, I would argue that Arsenal felt a lot more comfortable. And it does give Rob Holding more options, although I think it's less of an option, but more of a response to having... Um, that extra attacker, right? Because a four-five-one, you don't have as many people kind of pressed up on your center backs as quick um, with that naturally. You know, you, you leave somebody out. So um, I do think it was more a, a midfield battle, let's say, as opposed to kind of the build-up. And the consequence is dropping somebody out of the back line and adding them to the midfield simply. Yep. Uh, Brad, I've got on my notes, 29 mins holding, fuck you, check your shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> I there was some kind of you know there's some team news chaos before the game there was some question marks over whether Ben White was going to start the game because he'd gone off and whether he'd gone for a poo or something there was all this usual Arsenal fan guff on, on Twitter and all that sort of stuff um, I tweeted out and I stand by this and I'm interested in your opinion Brad this I don't know whether this is an unpopular opinion maybe, maybe it is maybe it isn't I feel like there would be ob- objections to it I feel as though, in this system, Jorginho is a better player than Rob Holding, overall in terms of his abilities. But in this system, I think having Jorginho in for Thomas Partey would hold us back much more than having Rob Holding in for William Saliba. Rob Holding makes mistakes, 100%. There's a massive gap on on the 29 minutes I'm talking about. I think it's Somerville gets the ball in between them. It doesn't check his shoulder. It's it's horrible defending and you just don't see it from Saliba. And you can see it in every so often with his touches or or, or whatever in his progression. There just isn't that pass selection or whatever. Fine, we know that. But I think... Yeah, I'd be interested in your overall opinions of holding, you know, not necessarily just in this game, but 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 overall and how much you see him potentially holding us back. And uh and yeah, the, the, the chaos before uh the game in terms of Saliba and, and how you see that all playing out. Listen, the the biggest compliment I can pay to this system is we make uh Rob Holding look like a kind of tenth to twelfth place centre back in it. Like he looks like he could start at you know, teams between kind of 10th and, and 14th, when in reality he's a kind of bottom six level of the Premier League defender when in, in terms of ability. Um, he's always been the fifth choice at centre-back, in my mind. And as a fifth choice centre-back, bringing him on for the last couple of minutes to see out a game, you know, winning some aerial duels, like he he has his his superpower if you use him for that but the problem is is we have ended up kind of sleepwalking into a situation now where he's our first choice right center back because both Tomiyasu and and Saliba are out um that's something that's got to be rectified in the summer Rob Holding in 2023 should be nowhere near starting these types of games for us as the only option um but you are right in what you say. I think that when you, if you look at what we ask our midfielders to do and if you look at what we ask Thomas Partey to do, it's such a hard job athletically, uh, technically, that having Jorginho in that role is a bigger downgrade than having Saliba, at the, uh, than having uh, holding for Saliba. And I think it's also because 
we have so much of the ball, we dominate so much of the play and we apply so much pressure that that can almost cover for the faults of Rob Holding because in reality, he's defending in moments. He's not having, you know, large, large stretches to, to really have to, to work his game under. Whereas with Jorginho, because of the, you know, the six in this system is so pivotal. If it's off, it, you know, we've seen it happen. We've seen full collapses. The transition team, control we've, just yeah. falls apart with that. It just, we just fall apart without somebody in there of that quality, which is why it's something that has to be addressed in the summer. But I do think it's a bit, um, it's a bit of a, a mistake on our part to to be this kind of far into it and still having to rely on on Rob Holding, but relying on Rob Holding to play against where our leaves like nineteenth in the league, eighteenth in the league, are fine because these are the kind of games where okay, if Rob costs you a goal, I'm quite confident now that we're going to score three against this team. It's not like if if you're if you're looking at it that way, it's it's less of a problem and okay, clean sheets are important and so it's goal difference. But uh, I, I think the madness is, is, is it, it comes from a period of Arsenal, again, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, and all the way back into Wenger days when we had a good starting 11 and if any of those were off, like it was a big, big problem, you know? And I think it's not the case anymore. And we also play a system that is very, very well designed, designed to cover for the flaws in... And we have a manager who who edits things so well and on the fly that I have no doubt that he'd have seen the way that Leeds were warming up in terms of having their their wingers stretch in possession and narrow out of possession or whatever we were saying earlier and, and, and would have adjusted something to kind of counterbalance that. I, I, I'm, I think we worry. Again, it comes back to what the game worry. We're not the same. It's not the same equation anymore. I'm less and less worried when I see people drop off the team news to play relegation fodder. Um, but it's, I mean, it's a desperate need for me that he's back for the next game at Anfield. I think if we are going there with Rob Holding, Cody Gakpo or Darwin Nunes or probably fucking Jota because he hasn't scored in 30 games. Yeah, Jota's it's just going to hat trick, guaranteed. <laughs> Absolutely guaranteed. Um, yeah, if holding I, plays, Jota is gonna score like fifteen bicycle kicks. But I sort of, I, I, I do agree with two of your points in that one, holding is defending in moments. So if we can control the game, I think we can control that narrative. And secondly, okay, if holding ships you a goal, hopefully we can score two or three up the other end. So it's kind, of, you know, you feel you feel as though there is maybe some sort of some some safety from that. Moving away from that conversation because the Saliba thing might be something we come to news and views. I don't know, but but it's uh, yeah, it's realistically no one knows. There's very little information we have. Obviously, we hope he's back for Anfield. I don't know, I don't know how much how uh, groundbreaking that information is. I wanted to talk about our home record against our away record, and I got some numbers here. We played 15 games at home and 14 away. We've conceded double at home than we have away. 18 goals conceded at home compared to nine away. We've got expected goals against 15.2 to 12.9 away. We've had more shots on target faced. Um, we've had three clean sheets at home and nine away. Uh, and those kind of stats just keep on going. George, what do you put that down to? Because I'm, I'm trying to kind of wrap my brains and, you know, obviously what we lost three, three games. It's not necessarily about we're shipping goals and it's really costing us, but it is, it is concerning because, uh, that home record, you know, 
typically you hope to be better at home, obviously, you know, stating the obvious. My only thing I, I, my only um, possible theory is that we have so much control at home that sometimes there's a concentration thing. I think sometimes it feels like we ship goals in in moments rather than necessarily in long periods of where where we're defending at home. And the second thing is, I wonder if you looked at the injury record. I I feel like we miss we've missed. If we look at our players and what games they've missed, they've all missed more home games. The important play, like feels like Partey against Man City. That's three goals where he wasn't there. I feel like if you did some kind of chart and some kind of data, I don't know, this is completely feeling-based. If you could work out the games that Partey and Jesus were missing for, Saliba's missing for, whatever, it feels like that's heavier on the home side of things. Uh, but that could be that could be wrong, I don't know. But yeah, your thoughts on that? I um, I think actually it's how the opposition sets up against us versus home versus away. And shock horror, when you, when you go away, I actually think that the opposition's more open and that suits Arsenal. Um, I do think that when you look at some of the home record and if you go back in terms of the halves, how many times have you counted teams setting up legitimately with six players back? And when we talk about the Leeds formation with this 4-3-3, there were so many times they went 6-3-1 where they would drop kind of Christensen and Harrison as one of their eights back along with uh, Cock and Strike to kind of diminish the role of a Granit Xhaka, Odegaard, and Gabriel Jesus' front line. Um, and then they left kind of Sinistera, Somerville, Narrow with Roca and Aronson. And the reason I bring up Leeds is because this isn't a one-off. Many teams, whether it's a 6-3-1 or a 4-5-1, have opted to really pack the box um, when they come to Arsenal. Whereas I do feel that when we do go away, while that certainly happens because we're a good team and we force teams back, they are a little bit more open. There's a little bit more impetus for them to attack and stretch the pitch a bit more. And I think that combined with kind of the set piece misconcentration, I, I think it might be coincidence that maybe we face more of those at home uh, versus away. Um, I don't know the exact stats, but I don't think it would be inordinate of the amount of goals we conceded home versus away and set pieces specifically. But I think in general, when you kind of add the concentration issues there, but also some of the difference in uh, the injury record, as you said, for me, especially in February, I think we had, there was a section of home games where kind of our starters were missing. And it was also with Gabriel Jesus. And that seemed to me us finding a way to, to win without our plan A. And, and that is what shipped a lot of goals initially, no problem. But beyond that, I do think that it's the way that the opposition line up against Arsenal home versus away plays a major difference. And I do find that we are ahead. Again, I don't have any stats to really do this, but I do find that we're ahead quite early at home and um there, there are periods in the second half where we're two three nil up and the goal that we do ship is inevitably a consolation goal one that's a three one a four one it's happened a lot this season and so it's a goal that you know you're not shaking your fist about in anger and you're saying it's poor it's poor concentration from us but it is a case of having already won the game and taking your foot off the gas pedal. Now, is that something that you love to see as a coach? No, I think any coach will say, unacceptable, we keep the gas pedal on from minute one to 90. But some of that, I think, has to do with A, breaking a block down versus being a little bit higher up the pitch, or uh, vice versa. Um, Someone's not happy, but we can see it in that goal. The dog's fuming is in Schenke. Sorry, we finished yours. Yes, yes. So it was it was essentially kind of just the difference between for me uh, facing kind of a big block that's staying in your box versus kind of 
some of the more soft factors, I'd call it, facing more teams with your uh, less plan A and injuries than, you know, versus the set piece concentration issue, which again, it's been rearing its head, um, you know, consistently. And uh, look, it's a frustration, but I can't pinpoint it as a breakdown in system. Uh, but I can see a lot more teams willing to pack the box uh, at home uh, against us than I do away. I, I definitely see more spaces. And naturally, transitions are better away from home. We all know this uh, just broadly. And I do think the more space you give Arsenal, the worse it is. Um, and then kind of vice versa. If we if we keep having to face a low block, you're inevitably going to have an outlet transition or two. And that relies on moments. Um, I, I think a team that is uh, kind of built on defending... Um, and we've seen it in the past, is a little bit better than kind of the one or two odd moments of having this high line of an outlet kind of play where you have a breakaway on in one sense, or a Bournemouth is another perfect example. Is there any reason why we've scored off the kickoff? No. I mean, it's a moment of madness from everybody who's not switched on, but I don't think it's a defensive issue that many teams are going to score a Bournemouth-type goal, let's mm. say. Although they, try, they tried to. That, that early one. They got the shot off. Yeah. They tried. <laughs> yeah. 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 Brad, it's interesting because like, if you look at the type of goals that we've scored this season, they tend to be, you know, they're not, they're not all under this rule, but they tend to be a long period of possession, a long period of trying to break a team down. There's a little chink in the armour. We get through, we score the goal. And it feels like the goals we concede are often long periods of our possession. They get a little breakaway, they score, or it's from a set piece. So, yeah, I mean maybe we're looking too much into it sometimes there's just there's just more goals scored in certain games you know it does it, it, it maybe there's not some kind of huge systemic issue that we need to have a look at but i guess does it concern you is it something that you think you know is it something we should pay any specific attention to anything you think we could change um i i think we've already in previous podcasts highlighted what we can change in terms of the concentration issue at, um at the restart of games and then at, at, at corners and, and set pieces but I'm not concerned in terms of you know I'm trying to think back to the open play goals that we've conceded at home this season and I'm going I mean there's the this, Rashford this one, one is, yeah, where this he just one picks freak, it up yeah, smacks it <laughs> that's a spanker the, you have this freak deflection um, and then I think we've conceded some really really unlucky goals um, in terms of it, just in ter- like if you think like we we conceded a header to a player who only managed to get the header off because he was short enough to be at that height. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's weird shit like that has just gone against us this season in certain moments, like the the Douglas Louise corner goal. But I was there and I saw where the, I think it's Watkins has got his arms around. Ramsdale so he can't move towards the ball and and they give the goal which shouldn't do you know what I mean I, I feel like we've conceded some really shitty stupid goals that either shouldn't have stood or just sometimes it's going to happen in moments especially if we're 3-0 up because the game's won at that point and if I'm a, and as much as I understand George's idea as a coach of going you know we keep the throttle up from one minute to 90 if you're realistic the only games that you need to do that against uh, in are games against teams with quality that can continuously punish you like your man cities like your like your um like your liverpools like you know 
uh, I'm hesitant to say United or Chelsea, but that have players of real quality in systems that can exploit. Uh, and I don't think that that's a problem against a lead. I, I think that if the game's 3-0, I'd much prefer them for the run-in to start conserving their energy if we're at home to a team that I mean, is likely to go down this season. Um, and uh, none of these goals have cost us. That's the thing. That's why I'm finding it hard to kind of pick them apart or pick points that I'm yep. really annoyed about because, I mean, I they've I'm, meant fuck all. I'm having a look through our, our our games this season at home and the goals that we've conceded. And I'm looking at, at Leicester. I feel like there was, it was a mistake, uh, mistake from Saliba, obviously, with the own goal. And it was the, um, for me, Ramsdale should do better. Fulham is the Gabriel mistake. Villa's a penalty. Um, uh, where Tommy Asu, Eddie had. Tommy Asu. Villa's not a penalty. Villa was the corner. Oh, Villa's the corner. Sorry, yeah, you're right. Um, West Ham's the penalty. So, yeah, they're, they're, it just feels like you go through each one and it's not to give every single one a, uh, what's the word? Like Get an out. Get out of jail. Free out of jail yeah, exactly. They're mistakes and there is no, you know, not there's no excuse for a mistake, but there's a reason for, for, for them going in and they don't feel like systemic ones. Actually, ironically, the only ones that I'm worried about are the space in behind. If you go back and watch the Liverpool uh, game, there was a lot of chances we conceded from from the line not being quite right. Mm. So especially if we go into that game against hold, uh, with Holding and, and Gabriel, that 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 does concern me if they if they get it right in terms of Trent getting that ball over the top and Nunes, et cetera, et cetera, exploiting the space in behind. Um, moving on then just to some individuals and then before we have a quick look at the goals, uh, it was great to have Jesus back. Obviously scores his first... Uh, first two goals since October. Um, Brad, what did you make of his performance? It was just—it's just that chaos, isn't it? That you just love, and we're we're on our way to a hundred. You know, the kind of hundred goals thing that Mikel wants. Uh, I think we're on seventy-one goals. City are on seventy-two, and the next closest is Spurs on fifty-eight. So you know, it's great to have him back. It's unbelievable, mate. He's he's sensational. I think Arsenal might be, and I'd love to know this. Um, so if somebody can be asked to do the deep dive, we might. I mean, how many? players are we going to end up on on 10 goals this season you know five six yeah i think we're you know, we're, Jacques, we're we've it. got we've, saka 13 martinelli 13 erdegaard 10 and ketia 9 jesus 7 Xhaka 7 um and some of those are all comps though this in, in premier league goals we might end up with Xhaka, jesus saka martinelli and erdegaard all on 10 premier league goals that's unbelievable. And and Jesus might get to a double-double um, with 10 goals and 10 assists after missing four months of the season, however many months of the season. Like, I mean, I, I don't think you could... I think people, because... I was having this conversation with a, with a friend, actually, in the show that I'm in, about, um, you know, I said that on-form Bukayo Saka right now is, is the best right-winger uh, in the world. Uh, and he, we, we were, he's a Liverpool fan. We were talking about Mo Salah and the fact that he's having a down season, but still putting up quite, quite healthy goal and assist numbers. And you look at our squad, and none of them are the outlet. None of them are. George said this earlier. We, we're not funneling through anyone, and that's what makes this squad and this system so good. Is the fact that you can have players like Trossard coming in, getting eight assists in three months, and you know. There's no burden on anyone. It's, it's, and to have that main cog back that has 
kind of allowed us to start that process and facilitate that process is is vital, especially come the running at the end of the season, you know. Before before January, we were looking at frontline options being Enketia, Saka, Martinelli, and you know, Jesus was injured. Who else who else did we have? Who else I can't Nelson. think. Nelson. You know, now you look at our front line and we're eight points clear and coming back to full fitness, we have front line options of Trossard, Jesus, Enketia, Martinelli, Saka, um Smith Rowe, I guess. I'm missing one. Nelson. No, no, I'm definitely I'm 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 definitely missing one there. The quality and depth up there is amazing and the fact that we've now got that linchpin who started this whole process back who and and here's the thing actually here's the thing that I really wanted to mention one thing that I loved was the discourse about we have so many good versatile players in so many positions right now nobody knew where the fuck people were starting people were saying Jesus could be starting on the left with Martinelli through the middle and Trossard uh, and sorry Jesus on the right and Trossard on the left and Martinelli through the middle or is it going to be like that's that's brilliant because then you have an unpredictability that an opposing team's manager cannot predict. The fact that uh, an Enketia Martinelli Saka lineup is very, very different to a Trossard Martinelli Jesus lineup. But like you know what's that, funny, Brad? Like broadly, fans don't appreciate this versatility. And, and what oh, I, do I mean it. by that is people I constantly love it. put players into a box. And and look, we kind of talked about maybe the initial struggles of Trossard on the right-hand side, because again, he is that close combo player. You know, he's somebody that when receiving, there was that one pass that, you know, Ben White does in terms of getting it into Saka's path when he's running, right? That little in-road pass to get it instead of kind of receiving it back to goal. Um, and, and look, that struggled with Trossard because just naturally the angles aren't the same from a left-footed player receiving that kind of pass versus a right-footed player. But when Trossard was able to kind of go from the right-hand side, we've seen him on the left, but then move in the middle of the park, I found Jesus filling in the holes beautifully on the right-hand side and really just naturally adding himself to drop in the half spaces. And when you've got Harrison and Christensen, who were their two opposition eights that were dropping into their center backs to form this kind of six, it opened up the half space cross. And boys, like, I don't know about you, but as a tactic, it was something that we used. We looked to try to get in behind their back line quite often, whether it was the cross from a Martinelli goal, whether it was the, the goal from Granit Xhaka, whether it was kind of this ball from Zinchenko overlapping, there were many times that we looked to float a ball in behind the defensive line in this game. And I think it all comes from the movement of Jesus being able to pull people out of position that that becomes an option. And even though we don't have an aerial guru in the box, we definitely played uh, a lot of balls from wide into the box to try to break kind of this back line. And we used our eights or our false nine to draw people out of that back line so yeah. that we could create space in between the center backs. And when you've got play a player that's as good as separating from people as Jesus, you don't need that aerial guru-ness. Like that header that he has should be a goal. Like that's the classic Jesus big chance missed moment before he, he scores a brace. Do you know what I mean? But like the fact that he's got that separation and one thing as well, the fact that he doesn't seem to have lost any burst from this injury, you know, he still seems as absolutely agile and rapid is is a big plus. I don't think, you know, I look at our front line now and I'm, I think as much as I, I think maybe we need to add somebody that does have a little bit of height in there, it's no longer imperative that we get some like six foot four behemoth because we have some, like peeling off a defender is just as useful as being big. 
I disagree, but we haven't got time to go into it. Um, we we sh- just very quickly uh, before we go to news and views. I think there's not loads on the goals, to be honest. I think, uh, as you as you mentioned, George, it was encouraging to see that half space cross from Erdogan to Jacker, and it's and again he peels off well from the defender. Uh, the penalty is a penalty, and I think the two goals really are, uh, from Jesus, the first one and White's uh, in the 47th minute, were system goals. If you look at how we crashed the box this season with the two eights or whoever it ends up being with the two behind the the uh, centre forward pinning the centre backs, and then the left sided player or the right-sided player um, having the ball and then someone attacking the six-yard box the other side. It's textbook. We've seen Arsenal do it a lot this season. Um, but yeah, I thought it was, it was terrific. The final thing I wanted to say, Emil Smith-Rowe, right half space, was he? Providing that central running what? Impossible. It's, it's, it's Impossible. something key. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's no. a P word, I think. I, I forget Potter. who said it, though. Yes, Graham Potter. Rotter. <laughs> Graham Rotter. Oh, there it. it is. We found it. Brad, we'll see you. After this. Oh, geez, Dad, not the car again. Oh, happens all the time with old Betsy. Have you checked out Carvana yet? They have thousands of cars for under $20,000. But do those thousands of cars have personality like old Betsy? Betsy's held together by tape. And there are raccoons living in the engine. It's a family car. Uh, there are flames on the hood. Ah, custom paint job. No, Dad, the car's on fire. How many cars did you say Carvana had? Visit Carvana.com to shop thousands of cars for under $20,000. We'll drive you happy at Carvana. Welcome back to News and Views, where we give you all the news and all your views, but mostly ours. Thank you to those of you who are in the Different Knock Members Club. Join at patreon.com forward slash diffknock and get access to ad-free versions of all of our content, including main and bonus podcasts, instant reactions, the rewatch, and bonus video content for just £3 a month. I've wanted to ask why coffee.com forward slash diffknock where you can buy me a coffee. The links are in the show description. Brad, I can tell you are horny to discuss the managerial merry-go-round so why don't you kick us off oh it's beautiful uh, Potter um, the Rotter's gone Rogers is gone who's going Potter where Potter the Rotter's gone Pochettino yeah. Nagelsmann talk fucking to me fucking hell mate I was literally uh, I came uh, I was in the middle of a show yes I think it was did, yeah I think Rogers went yesterday didn't he he didn't go today well did he go today no this morning I think it's been a weird it's been a weird 20, oh yeah no it was during the literally the West Ham game had kicked off and I came off from doing the from doing our opening and went into my dressing room. I think, and I saw that news. It was a euphoric moment. Oh my god! It's t- the madness has begun. Um, Lord knows why they've uh, like. I mean, why are we like? I don't. It doesn't quite compute why we're you know sacking managers with nine games to go, especially as it seems that. You know, uh, but alas, I lack the day. It started and I fucking love it. Who's going where? I ain't got no fucking clue. Maybe Potter's going to Spurs. Maybe Potter's going to Leicester. Maybe Rogers is going to Spurs. Wouldn't that be funny if they just fucking swapped? What is this season? Chelsea have spent £600 million and are 11th. It's crazy. And and George, like I think really what it shows you is is about ideological alignment. It's the most important part of success of a football club. That is that is un, unequivocal. 
It's undeniable. And if you have a disparity between what the owner wants and the manager wants, you can't succeed. And if you have a, ma- a disparity between what the manager and the f- uh, the way the director of football or the sporting director or the technical director, or whatever your setup is, if you have a disparity in terms of how they see the game, how they see the squad developing, how they see um, football being played, you've got a problem. And I think if you look at any, as we've said a million times, if you look at any successful team, they're successful because there's alignment on and off the pitch. And it's pretty crazy to me at Chelsea that they've that they've done this. I think, you know, as as Brad mentioned with a massive grin on his face, six hundred million pounds spent. I don't know how much they're going to have to pay Potter. It's It's a lot of money. It's, it's a, a lot, lot of money. money. It's five it's, year contract. I actually have the number. What is it? it it's three point one million per victory. <laughs> is the breakdown oh, of what they've been able to that's do. Crazy. That's crazy. That's <laughs> crazy. But look, George, if you're um I, I, I hate to that's <laughs> hilarious. I hate to try and fix a Spurs or a Chelsea. No. Where do you think manager wise and stylistically they both go now? Because for me it feels like the inevitable moves are Nagelsmann to Chelsea and Potter to Spurs. I've seen people say the inevitable move is the Potter to Leicester um, and someone else to sorry, uh, yeah, and someone else to Spurs and maybe Amarin to Spurs or, or whatever whatever your sort of um, choice du jour might be. But wh- what would you do as both a Chelsea owner and and uh, and Leicester owner and Spurs owner and whoever sacks their manager next? Because who who knows at this point? Um, so I'll I'll do this very quickly for Spurs. I and I don't mean this to be rude. I don't think that their ceiling is a team that is a top six team. Um, I, I fundamentally feel that if you're going to do it, you have to blow it up in a sense and, and go youth project and make sure that you kind of align yourself um, with what you were. I don't even consider what their past successful, but if you want to consider their best period, what was it? It was built on a kind of youthful experience that was bringing through players that um, I, I wouldn't say were destined for stardom. When you look at Gareth Bale, by the way, he wasn't a youngster that you know people were saying is going to become one of the best players to play the game or best English players to play the game. That wasn't what was being said. He was left back that they were able to kind of recruit from Southampton and kind of build up into this very big superstar. They did very similar with Luka Modric. Um, again, another talented player, but somebody that wasn't pick to be the world's best and you know he ended up being it and and I think for them pick a young, a young manager that believes in youth that's going to give them a chance I think Ruben Amorim gives them a level of structure that they need um, you don't want to just go full youth coach but for me um, they're a they're a team and a squad that need to go back to uh, kind of being the destination for talented youth prospects and giving people a chance and be that stepping stone club. And I mean this with the absolute most sincerity. Being a stepping stone club isn't bad. It's what got them relevance to begin with. And I think they believe that they were something else right now. And that's been the problem because they're not. And they haven't had the mentality to kind of go through it. And they've picked managers that are win now managers for a club that has not won now in the past, really, uh, and ever. So that's already a big philosophical change. Then when you go to kind of Chelsea, I think Chelsea is a mishmash. They're probably the easiest club in the world to fix, but they are the stupidest club in the world when it comes to how to fix it. Do you really think that, George? Absolutely. When you have a look at kind of their squad and their money potential and their academy that they don't use, it's actually kind of remarkable when you look at kind of their past academy graduates 
they don't use anybody that they produce. Levi Colwell right now um, is one of the best homegrown left center backs um, in the league, but also in the world. Why are you buying Benoit Badiashi? He was an excellent player in his own sense, but why are you buying Mark Cucurella? <laughs> when you have a look at their squad, there's many assets that you could use to kind of sell and create a new identity. But also when you've got a kind of a, or a, an owner that's willing to spend and break transfer records, it's a very easy thing to fix. Do I think they do it? I don't think so because they've hamstrung themselves so much financially that it's almost impossible for them to go into a direction that is um, kind of coherent. They've bought a mix mash of pieces that is from different puzzles. It's almost like you've got pieces from a Lego puzzle mixed in with a wooden puzzle and you're trying to create a picture that is both a boat but is not built for the same material. And so essentially they need a voice, they need somebody that is a strong football mind um, that is authoritative and can gain the respect of the dressing room because they have had a massive dressing room issue that by the way, the sacking of Graham Potter destroys that. The whole reason that they were sticking with Graham Potter was this fake idea that they were going to break the player power in the dressing room. That was the whole idea of a long-term project, right? And you kind of rip this apart by not giving the man the facilities that he needs. Uh, and I don't mean that money-wise, I mean it structure-wise. Because I think a lot of people and me are very critical of the amount of money that they've spent, but they have done nothing to back up the youth scouting structure. They've done nothing to implement a loan manager structure that's proper. They've done nothing to show a pathway to the talent that they buy. You know, Chuck Wemeka, a very, very talented midfielder. Where is his pathway into the first team at this point in time? I don't see it. Why did you buy it? You know, he's a great player in its own right. It's not a bad move, but it's it's a move that you're never going to realize the potential of because you're never going to give him a chance. So it's a very backwards thinking, and that's why I say it's an easy club to fix because you've got the players, you've got the financial capability, but if you're not going to give a clear, coherent plan, it's never going to work. And I just so don't know if they have the financial bit. capability anymore, do they? They've hanged. Well, they've, they've, these contracts are they're they're amortized over seven years for FFP. Like the more that they spend, it's going to hit a point where they cannot spend any more. And I think that they're now bridging. They're teetering on the knife edge territory of if let's say they get um, Nagelsmann in right, if his transfers don't work. And that, that, that's their, their transfer strategy for the next five to six years, really scarpered by the fact that they have £600 million amortised over the next seven years. That's, what, 60, 70 million? Like, more than a year on the books already. If your transfer budget was £150 million, you're talking about £80 million of that, being gone automatically purely by the fact that they've got it on the books they don't they're gonna it's gonna get to a point where they don't have the room within the books to to spend that money anymore and they've just given given pot of what 20 30 million pounds to leave that's that's more amortized on the books like i i as much and i think that's why i disagree with you i don't think it's an easy fix at all as well because if you look at the talent that they've bought it's quite incoherent at points like they've got they've got players who are very between the lines very nice and cute and then they have players like Mudrick who you want space to run into 
I, there's just no, you're you're absolutely right in what you say that there's no through line. I just don't know how they lead themselves out of it without waiting a very very long time because the money's gonna dry up. If you look at the Cobham talents to have left though, and look, they've spent money horribly, and we know that they're gonna financially be hamstrung. But let's say they do the stupid idea of trust the youth purely, and they don't mm. buy anybody. They would be in a better shape than they are for the past three years, in my opinion. Um, and I'm worried that they find a manager with the resolve to do that. Because if they do, I think that Cobham is second and potentially even first in comparison to Hale End in the country. They have an incredible youth system that if they ever just trusted, they would have gotten out of the hole for quite a while. When you look at Koulibaly, Tiago Silva, and then you look at Mark Wehi being out doing a phenomenal job, they could have easily done a job with Mark Wehi in the team doesn't get trusted. Uh, they buy Cucurella. I've talked about kind of the, the Levi Colwell situation. Like they, they produce these talents that aren't just okay talents, but legitimate potential superstars and they don't trust them, which is phenomenal. So um, Mount's yeah, apparently uh, going as well. Like you think in the, in the last three years, they'll have lost Abraham, Tamori, Gehi, Mount, um, maybe even what's his name? He's an on loan at Bayer Leverkusen. Hudson Odoi probably might go, and they also they might if they don't get Europe they might have to do a massive fire sale. You think like I th I think ultimately every every club needs to have a look at a, a real knowledge of who they are and a real knowledge of where they're at and 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 obviously this depends on owner owner ownership model and ownership level and ownership finances really ultimately because these are businesses. And kind of as George is saying, and sort of as you're saying, Brad, it's look at what what you've got. And Chelsea have got an incredible academy, and could supplement that with world class um, world class talent because they have the financial level. Someone like Leicester need to have a look at more of a sort of sustainable model, um, or perhaps more you know less sort of spending on superstars, but looking at you know buying sort of Brentford, Brighton, that sort of thing, buying cheap and selling on. And then someone like Spurs, again, I think could, could look at a youth, a youth project, especially where they are in terms of London and whatever. I'm not trying to fix these clubs because fuck them. But I think the thing that Arsenal have done is that we've looked at ourselves and we've given the right people the right time. And we've gone, okay, well, what? who are we? Well, Arsenal, we, we have a, we have a, we, we are able to develop youth. We're able to sign you know, players at a certain level. We can't sign the Mbappes, the Messis or whatever, but we can sign certain players and we've got those right, uh, got those sort of signings right. Ultimately, it's about looking at yourselves honestly and trying to assess that and then planning accordingly. And that's why I think until Burley or Levy or whoever it is shows that level of self-awareness of what they are, I don't think either club will be sustainably fixed. And that's the big word and, and something I'm probably boring for what we're saying now. Sustainability will be the big word in football. It, it will be the big word in football over the next 10 years because, because you're seeing that the best projects, the most sustainable and ultimately the most profitable projects are the ones where the right people have been assessed because of a proper assessment of who the club is and where the club is and then been given time. And, you know, they'll probably get Nogglesman in Nagelsmann will probably do well for a while and, and the washing machine will spit them out. And if that's who Chelsea want to be, fine. But they're, they're wasting a lot of money and I think eventually sustainability will have to take over. There's two things that I would probably suggest because, again, I don't want to fix the clubs, but getting broadly, you need to ask, what is your way of playing? When you talked about it, 
kind of, you know, Alex, in terms of what Arsenal did, it wasn't just giving them the time, but, you know, per Marcel Lucasen very clearly defined what an Arsenal way of playing was. What is the Chelsea? What is the Spurs? What is that message about what you want to play? And it kind of ties into your ideological um, kind of uh, viewpoints. Um, you know, what is our idea? What is our ideology? What do we want our club fabric to be? And I think there also needs to be a bit of people recognizing what has been successful in our past and do it. Like I find clubs that veer away from their traditional ways of success typically fall off the rails a little bit more. Um, and, and then lastly, when you talk about sustainability, there is an arms race for talent, not just coaching-wise, not just player-wise, but scouting-wise, coaching-wise. One thing that Arsenal have done is made themselves a destination for coaches at the youth level, by the way. Dan Michichi um, and Kevin Betsy have gone on to do very successful careers. We haven't just become a youthful destination for players, but we've done so with coaches. And I don't think that that modern approach has been applied to many clubs that are so-called in the mud right now. You need to make yourself a destination for kind of production and development because it is an arms race. And when you have so many um, modern clubs that have access to the amount of knowledge and facilities that we do, there is no talent that isn't going to be unknown anymore. There really is no unknown gem, quote and unquote. Like the, the reach of these networks are so, so big. That, you know, when you're in London, by the way, a hotbed for huge talent in England, why not make yourself the destination, whether you're Arsenal, Spurs, Chelsea, whatever, it's so easy to do in an idea sense, but so hard to execute because you've got people that are countering the win now mentality. I think that yep. really is what the trouble is for a lot of these clubs. Yeah, I think you're bang on. And I, I think what you said at the beginning as well, you know, the ideological alignment of the football of what of of the way you want to play football is is exactly what I always say because ultimately it simplifies your decision making. It then goes okay, well this is how we want to play football. Who are the coaches doing that? Let's get them in right from under nines from, you know, doing the Arsenal outreach, you know, they get they get these guys who have the same principles and that and then you can build a brand and then it all goes from there. So it's Look, fuck them. I hope they stay organized, disorganized forever. But, um, but you know, I think if you're looking around now at successful projects, you have to look at Arsenal. And you also have to look at Man City. You look, Man City have the money, but they're also smart. They're so smart. They're such a smart club. It's not as simple. We've seen it with, with you know, with PSG and whatever. Like, if you're not smart with your money, you're going to go out there every summer and spend 150 million and nothing will change. And actually Man City are building a dynasty. If you look at their youth academy, it's incredible. Romeo Lavia didn't get in their team and he's now going to go for, um, you know, probably 45 million. I think they get a, a buyback clause at some point. Anyway, you know, that they're, they're unbelievably well run and that all comes from Chiki Begerestein. It comes from um, the ownership structure and the model over there and, and, and the staff who have all been defined under one way of playing. And I guarantee... When Pep leaves, there will be a very clear succession plan, and I'm concerned about the guy in our dugout at the moment where he goes. I don't think it would happen now, but in the future. Um, right, let's get to some questions then, shall we, from our lovely listeners. Reese Vincent. Reese Vincent? Reese Vincent. Sorry, if, uh, misread your name. What front three should we go with against Liverpool? Um, if it's all players fit, all players ready, raring, it's got to be Saka, Jesus, Martinelli for me. <sighs> um, I would say yes to Brad, but I'm very upset about leaving out Leandro Trossard, who I think has been... He's my first substitute. Uh, he would be, and I hear it, and I hear why, but if I'm really being fair, the performances suggest Trossard should stay, but Gabriel Jesus has a 
excellent history and he is your starting striker. And I think keeping him out in a game like this sends the worst message to him individually. So it's it's a as a coach, I would hate this decision. I'll be honest with you guys. And um Yeah. Whoever yeah, I doesn't would probably start go with the brand. Whoever doesn't start, it's not fair on them. It's not fair. And we've had a question from at Krog underscore FC who says we've got Trossard who's already been to Anfield this season and scored a hat-trick. Does he start next week? I just, I I don't want to drop Trossard. Actually, But then, lads, but then who do you drop lads, him for? I wouldn't mind. I, I wouldn't mind dropping Martinelli for Trossard, you know, for this game. I think, yeah, I don't know if that might be the play. Mart- not Trussard because of anything Martinelli's done. Trent would be, as would Martinelli. Mate, Martinelli against Trent is probably the better 1v1 matchup between the two, yeah. but Trossard has a better historical matchup at Anfield. <laughs> like, period. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's horses for courses. I th- Again, you're not going to go wrong choosing one. One thing I will say is the only issue with maybe a Trossard Jesus is you've got two profiles in the front line that want to do the same thing. Mm. So just yeah. from a balance and chemistry perspective, it's like you want to choose one or the other to facilitate the front line better, not because they're they're worse. But Do you think uh, Mikel might look at this as, as he now calls them, impactors? And he might say, okay, who's going to have the bigger impact? The finishers, you say? Uh, well, yeah, well, exactly. Mate, uh, Brad, did you know George got a question uh, to Mikel about that? It's amazing. But I think he now calls them <laughs> impactors. Oh, my God. Um, it's on his Twitter. It's, it's, yeah. it's his pinned tweet. Uh, it was in that thing where Mikel <laughs> answered questions, I think, 2021, Go end on. of 2021. Um, Go on. George the, <laughs> and he's got UFB uh, coaching license. I don't know if you mentioned that. Um, if you didn't know. <laughs> if you didn't know. But if I'm looking at, okay, who's going to have the biggest impact when they come on and where are the space is going to be? How is the game going to change over time? I wonder whether Mikel's going to have a look at the game in that sense and go, how will the game be different at, say, 60 minutes compared to minute one? And I wonder whether a Jesus coming on late on to create some chaos or is it a Trossard for or a Martinelli coming on late on to ruin Trent yep to, to have a run at people possibly or it could be Trossard to, for, for um, you know that, that ability in the final third in terms of his his close control and his, his ability in tight spaces maybe that's more useful earlier on in the game I don't know I really don't know that's a really 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 tricky one that's a really give me a win at Anfield give me give me that win look I'm gonna I'll, I'll do I'll give it I'd answer sell a testicle on the bench. for it <laughs> I'll, no, I'll give an answer to not sit on the bench. For me, fundamentally, the space is going to be out wide. And that's why I would like to start with a Martinelli and Saka wing partnership if I was going to attack it from a coaching side of the, of the game. I, th- I think that right now, Liverpool are a very different midfield unit in terms of the pressure that they're going to be able to, to, to provide. And I think attacking their fullback areas and dragging their center backs out wide is something that they don't like to do. Um, and so I do think that starting the game, let's do that to try to work it. And then if there is some issues, we're going to need efficiency. And that's why I would add Trossard in place of maybe a Martinelli or a Jesus um, in the front line, along with like an Emil Smith-Rowe or a Fabio Vieira, another half-space crossing. Because I do feel as the game goes on, if you're going to ask a substitute question, it's because the game plan hasn't worked. And when the game plan hasn't worked, it's because I'm assuming that Liverpool are on the front foot and you need something a little bit more efficient in terms of a final action. So that would be my my way of attacking it. I'll buy that. 
I'll buy that. We've had a question from Dylan Clark at DJWC1981. He says, is Ben White the biggest wind-up merchant we've ever known at Arsenal? Watching him wind up Melier at corners on Saturday had me in stitches. And at Sav again has asked again, serious now, is Ben White a top five player of all time? He's a cult hero. I think Ben White is going to be the cult hero of this team just for the shithousery. Do you know what I mean? In like 20 years time, when none of these players play anymore and we look back, we'll think, fucking hell, Ben White was a proper wanker, wasn't he? He was he was tripping fucking Raul Jimenez up when he was through, grabbing on goalies' gloves. Like, I love it. He's a bit of a maverick. And it's funny because you, you don't necessarily associate that with him. He's not, He's uh, there's something about him, you don't look at him and think, oh, you know, personality-wise, he's sort of a bit out there because he doesn't dress us any certain way, particularly whatever. But, you know, you look at his, his um, I don't know what happened with England, but it sounds like he's not particularly loved there. Um, there is a sort of edge to him, which I quite like. There's a sort of like slightly fuck you energy to him that I, I quite like. And I wonder where that comes from. Um because if you if you watch him in interviews, there is a slight sort of I don't know what the word would be. It's 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 a kind of intelligence, but it's kind of a, a humorous and nonchalance. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how quite to describe how to describe, and I have to actually spend time with him to to sort of maybe analyze it a bit better. But certainly in interviews, there is a kind of. Um, and it doesn't read his defensiveness either, because I think sometimes that can read his defensiveness, but it feels like an ultra comfortability and, and confidence. And, you know, in terms of it as a player, we've seen how intelligent he is. So I wonder whether that translates kind of off the pitch and he's, you know, sort of a secret, secret genius because, you know, all that Melier stuff, I think is so funny. It's so good because he knows what do he's you, doing. Do you know what it is, though? Um, uh, he is the master of compartmentalization. Um in a sense, uh, you know, whether <laughs> it's the task at hand, um, he's comes from the school of Diego Costa in terms of really messing, like every other fan must hate Ben White. And I see why. Uh, but when you have a look at it, um, Leeds fans were actually... fuming because he celebrated the amount oh of my tweets and TikToks and stuff that I, and, tw- and videos on Twitter of Leeds fans like fuming and calling him like a backstabber and, and, and stuff for celebrating against them and for do, for winding up Melier, like he must. He, I'm pretty sure you're right that they must fucking hate him. Oh, livid! And and you know what? At the same time, though, I don't think he gets enough praise for basically becoming the best right back in the league. Look, it's always a position I wanted him to end up at. It's always I felt his destination, but to do it so quick, I don't think he gets the praise for the quality that he gets shown on to it. And and I think. Beyond that, Ben White is kind of a player for me that is going to go down, like you said, Brad, as a cult legend in terms of how he acts on the pitch um, in kind of off-the-ball moments. But I also think the quality that he shows on a regular basis is going to be something very, very interesting. These back post runs and arriving to score goals are just the precipice of what he's able to do. And if he starts nailing that kind of half-space cross as an assist, We've got ourselves a very serious, serious right back in terms of potential, just pure quality um, on the ball. So I think I love Ben White. I think he is incredible. I think he's got a great narrative, a great story in terms of basically being kind of this center back that arrived with 50 million pounds, a price tag on his head, a point to prove. 
And I will offer a point of solution, by the way, that when he was a kid, he was very, very sick. Um, and he'd spent a lot of time in hospital. So this idea of kind of compartmentalizing yourself, I see it a lot with kids that I work with. They have an insane ability to be present in the moment. That is one of his superpowers for me because he is able to download information and play to the occasion in whatever circumstance and whatever environment he needs to. He can be the dick. He can be the cute player. He can be the player that um, everybody relies on physically. He, he can be whatever the team needs him to be in that moment. And I think that really describes his role quite well when you talk about him being a third center back, a role in midfield, an overlapping runner. He is what the team demands in the environment it demands for it. And so um, I, I think that just comes down to his ability to be present and have an insane compartmentalization and strong, sturdy mental uh, character. And then to end on something funny, he is a bit of a shithouse. So that's always fun. Yeah, it's always great. You always need one. <laughs> and he doesn't yeah, give a fuck. He's, yeah. he, uh, uh, he, there's a video of after the Bournemouth game and he just walks off and he just smiles at the camera. You got yeah. other people going fucking mental. He just didn't give a shit. He's a proper enigma. Just goes home to his unbelievably attractive girlfriend and just, just absolute legend. Fucking just watch his telly. Just, just watch his telly. Out. Probably doesn't even think about it until he goes into training. It's, it's incredible. It's it's a real, as you say, George. It is a real skill. He is almost this sort of, yeah, enigma mentally. Right. Uh, we should finish there, but we have just got time. We've just, just. got time. Uh, what? Actually, hang on, Brad, Brad. What time is it? Have we? Uh, it, uh, yeah go on I think okay. we'll chuck it in this week for a little bit of Arsenal trivia last time eight eight last time eight last time eight last time eight the theme was players who have scored the goal that won the game that won the Premier League and I asked you who scored the two goals to win the league at White Hart Lane in 2004. George, I'm coming to you for a theme in a second, by the way, so have a think. Who scored the two goals to win the league at White Hart Lane in 2004? Did Perez score one of them? Am I being an idiot? Is that, would you like to submit that? No, I'm not submitting it. Me, me, and, my, me and my co-guesser are having a, a conference. <laughs> co-guesser. <laughs> co-guesser, eh? Uh... God. Just a reminder, this is an audio platform and uh, th thinking time you, you, is uh, not, not the best content. So uh, just... <laughs> throw some names at oh. me, George. Throw some names at me. Campbell, did Sol, did Sol score? He didn't. Um, I know that was the that No, because that, that would have been a big with, story. Yeah, Jans Lehmann had a, had a shocker that game. That's all that Jans I remember didn't right score. Now, which doesn't help us. Yeah, yeah um, I'm going to say... Oh god! Did 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 Henri score? Dum 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 dum. I'm blanking so bad. Let's go with Henri and Perez. Let's go. Let's go with the French contingent. Henri and Perez. Yeah. Yeah. Go on, George. No, I'll I'll go with my co my co-host here. I don't know. Support Henri and Perez. I've got I've got no clue. Perez is correct. I Henri. Is incorrect. He didn't score, did he? The wrong Frenchman. It was Patrick Vieira who scored. Was it Paddy oh. V? It was Paddy V. Fuck. It, it was, was Paddy, Paddy v. v. And your theme this week was yeah. record transfer signings for Arsenal. So I would like to ask you, who are Arsenal's top five record signings in terms of transfer fee? Who are Arsenal's top five highest paid 
no top, top five highest i haven't read the question as you can tell basically the, the people we paid the most for top five if that makes any sense are, are we talking like it relative to inflation and stuff or transfer just like total fee. number at the time oh, yeah, transfer yeah, yeah. fee at just the original time. number original number no inflation and a theme please george a theme for you is going to be um let's do invoices let's do let's do a cult heroes uh, for the arsenal let in, in the theme of a ben white we'll do we'll do who is your cult hero how about invoices for the, for the different knock? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I think I've is. actually submitted them. Hopefully, hopefully. Have you actually sent it? Has it gone through an email? I have. I think. Uh, yes. <laughs> listeners, when Brad's pretty, you know. Oh my goodness me! I've actually got it. <laughs> I've asked George for his invoice for the podcast. I'm gonna say about fifteen <laughs> times at least. A strong 15 a times. and a half? <laughs> when Bradley Adams is doing something before... When Bradley Adams procrastinates less than you... Oi! You need Oi. to... <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> you cheeky bastard. Uh, oh, my goodness. Lovely stuff. Right. Well, that was a pleasure, boys. We will have a bonus podcast... A podcast. We'll have a bonus podcast for you midweek when I'm less hungover as well. Um and uh, after that we'll be back after Liverpool on the Sunday and probably have a main pod for you on that Monday Easter Monday he is risen Jesus is back and so are we oh wouldn't it be perfect a little cheeky cheeky little Jesus hat trick Easter Sunday you can see you can see the uh, you can see the fucking sun's headline yep lovely stuff Right. Pleasure as always, boys. Thank you so much for listening. Always. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you to all of you who are listening. We had the most ever downloads we've ever had in one day the other day, which was very nice. Uh, so thank you all for, for listening to us talk about soccer. Thanks for soccer. Listening. Keep it different, knock, and we will see you later. Radical dude. Peace. Thank you so much for listening to The Different Knock, an Arsenal podcast. Please hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using. If you'd like to support The Different Knock, you can find us on Patreon and buymeacoffee.com. We're on all social media at DiffKnock. Thanks. Podcast Network.